we can't go in as people of Western culture, Western background, Western ideals. And Capitalistic say, ideals, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. We cannot go in and say, this is what we think you should do in order to you know, increase women's economic participation or political especially, participation. Yeah. Especially when they're the byproducts of capitalism themselves. Exactly. Welcome to the Brown Don't Brown podcast with your host, Tanya Hardcastle. We're here to engage in a thoroughly inclusive conversation with women from different backgrounds, shaped by our cultural, racial and social experiences we share our stories. Good evening, fellow podcast listeners. Today's question is do we need a feminist foreign policy? And I'm delighted to say that joining me is the wonderful Charlene Gandhi. Thank you very much for coming on to today's show. Thank you for having me, Tanya. I'm so excited to be here. I think this is going to be really cool and I can only hope that we can impart some wisdom today. I hope so too, yeah. So do you want to start off telling us a bit more about yourself so the listeners can be enlightened? For sure, yeah. So hi everyone. Um, I am Charlene Gandhi, as Tanya has just said. Um, I am a London-based uh, freelance writer um, and I tend to focus on um, three main things really, uh, climate change, responsible business and health and well-being. Um, been published by Galdem, um, the Stanford Social Innovation Review and the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy, which is obviously what we're going to be talking about today. Mm. Um, so really, really excited to be here. Um, and yeah, again, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. I'm really pleased you're here. Um, so I guess we can start off with the basics. So... I guess, what is foreign policy? In terms of my understanding, a country's strategy and its relations with other countries is what the basis of foreign policy is. And sometimes it's a mechanism by which a country will preserve or further its own interests. Um, And that's based on just current events, I guess. We can see what's happening. Um, So encompassing foreign policy in matters such as diplomacy, security and defence, military strategies, financial aid, trade... And more recently, we've seen a lot of global environmental policies as well, due to the whole climate change situation going on as well. So we've got the incorporation of non-state actors and essentially NGOs and private multinational companies and corporations, which all sort of provide the framework for wider foreign policy initiatives. And I guess that we can link that in nicely with how can foreign policy be feminist, so, at its baseline, feminism means equality between the sexes. I mean, would you agree with that concept? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I think if you were to boil it down into a one-liner, 100%, it is equality between the sexes. Yeah. But I think recently I've come more and more to realise that it's actually a fight against patriarchy as a whole. I think feminism has this implication that it's only for women or it's only for one part of a yeah. a very binary... Um, idea of gender exactly so I think feminism today needs to take into account that there's a gender spectrum and increasingly also probably needs to take into account that men also have been subject to a lot at the hands of patriarchy absolutely Um, so there's no way that feminism is only for women I think feminism today is for everybody and it needs to become for everybody yeah so I guess if we seek to incorporate it into wider foreign policy objectives it's looking at the structurally and historically marginalised groups at the forefront of foreign policy strategies. And as you said, that also encompasses men as well as women, pretty much everyone who's who's been marginalised. Um, and so what it, I guess, intends to do for people who... Sometimes people just, get, I think, get quite overwhelmed with concepts such as um, foreign policy or feminism. It's like, well, you don't have to be. So I guess it's about reshaping our conventional thinking. So, for example... 
foreign policy strategies historically have focused on concepts of neoliberalism, capitalism and military forces. So essentially violence to enforce and make people or countries do things. So a feminist foreign policy ideally would seek to encourage thinking outside of these sorts of parameters and challenge the mainstream narrative. Well, one can only hope, I think. (laughs) I think when we talk about things like capitalism, we talk about essentially imperialist trade that's been in place for as long as it's been. When we start to put a feminist lens on it, actually you're at risk of just slapping feminism onto something that is fundamentally broken. Um, I think I'm quite passionate about the climate crisis and that's something that we see as a very tangible example of capitalism going horribly wrong. Yeah. But then, you know, if we are crafting foreign policy on the basis of capitalism, are we essentially just going, we can make this feminist, but at its core it's something that just doesn't really work for anybody. So I think there's there's loads of questions that come out of trying to put arbitrary definitions in place for these things. And you're absolutely right yeah. when concepts like foreign policy are so broad in their remit. People just feel really intimidated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I look at it, I'm like, huh? Yeah. You know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, on one hand, you've got trade. On the other hand, you've got, like, war and defence. And you just yeah. think that's two completely different things. Like, how do we break down this yeah. completely massive remit that we've given ourselves in terms of foreign policy? Absolutely. I mean, where would you say your interest in foreign policy came from? Um, a variety of sources, really. Um, so I did a bit of a funny degree um I did a dual degree in marketing and French so I was almost like split between a management school and between a department of European languages at Lancaster University oh wow and I I love a combination yeah Yeah. it's just a weird (laughs) quite creative as well it's a funny one but do you know what it kept me alive it it kept you alive it did keep me alive sorry I've just kicked the table um (laughs) it kept me alive because it meant that I got to do two very different things every day. Um, But I think the reason that I loved it so much was actually because I came out of both going, actually, there's a social justice angle to absolutely everything and there's a foreign implication angle to absolutely everything. Especially when you're studying a language, you inherently become a little bit more attuned to the world. And you see something from a completely new perspective, as people say. Yeah, and I think when... So obviously I did French and... You can't just study French as a language. You sort of have to recognise that French culture and French history and French colonial practice has actually fed so much into what we term as foreign policy. Um, They have a huge influence. They have historically had a huge influence, and that's something that I came across in my degree as well. Yeah, and the wealth of France is built on the back of years and years of colonialism. Yeah. Um, especially uh, within African countries as well. So well, that's something recently, we can't really forget. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, only yeah. recently they've stopped um, paying taxes to France. And for a lot of, I think, West African countries have stopped paying taxes to France, which is just... It I mean, how... Boggles so many the questions mind, there. It? Yeah. Boggles the mind. Um, but yeah, it's just... It gives you an idea of how layered the struggle is, if anything. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in terms of my interest in foreign policy, so I started, so I did a master's degree in public international law at the London School of Economics. And during my time there, I did various different modules ranging from public international law, of course, diplomatic relations, human rights. Um, and actually, my human rights module f- did one um, seminar in particular on women and human rights. And that was quite 
interesting from someone, you know, my undergrad was in law and that was obviously focused a lot more on UK law and more practical things such as contract law and things like that. So the master's really provided a foundation for my wider thinking when it came to when it comes to foreign policy. But I think what really garnered my attention was um, doing my dissertation topic on the children's rights discourse in confronting child labour in Bangladesh and India. Mm. So from my research on that, I found that the children's rights discourse, led by international non-governmental organisations, had actually trivialised the economic and social cultural factors which had silenced direct participation from children themselves and their parents, uh, as well as disproportionately censoring the state and penalising it. And what it failed to realise is that ultimately children are driven by the economic necessity to work in order to survive but they were being stigmatised for doing so in terms of the children's rights discourse. So mm. although it proclaimed to, you know, be for children and fight for children's rights, it actually did the opposite. So that was quite an interesting yeah. understanding of foreign policy from a practical yeah. lens. Do you know what's actually really funny? My mum actually has the same perspective sometimes where she's saying... Yeah. Well, if everyone goes into these places where actually families are reliant on their kids who yeah. are 15, 16 to bring in some sort of income because the income is so sporadic and everyone's going, you can't work because you're a child. Now, on it's the a very surface, controversial it's very controversial. Area, especially in the West. I mean, if you said something like that, it was like, it, you know, people would say you're breaching human rights and oh, things. Absolutely. But you need to have that conversation. I think it is really important not to tiptoe around things that may seem unconventional. Yeah, yeah. By the European or the Western lens, but... Yeah, I think yeah. that's the main thing, really, and that's the risk we have with foreign policy as a whole, but especially yeah. when we start talking about feminist foreign policy, is what is our idea of feminism? Yeah. And historically, and even today, we see this really... It's really sort of, for lack of a better way of saying it, white feminism that is like there is one way to be feminist and no other way to be feminist. I mean, that's, that's basically the reason, the ethos behind why I started this podcast in the first place. But um, yeah, absolutely, I completely agree with you. Mm. And if we look at the global consumption pattern, you know, we are hoarders, we love buying clothes. So it's essentially driven by the developed world and it's a widely accepted foreign policies, that is cheap labour in the garments industry. So we've got sweatshops, women and young children. You know, we have the example of the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh where over, over a thousand people died. So all that was fueled by the demand for fast fashion. So yeah. that's another, another interesting yeah, way to look at. Yeah, that one I just can't. I yeah. can't wrap my head around it. So I stopped buying fast fashion in February 2018. Oh, my God, that's oh, wow. two years ago. Oh, my God, wow. well done. Um, and I can't wrap my head around how people can still justify it in this day and age. I'm, like, to me, I just have... I've now got to a point two years into it where there's just this disgust that comes with, like, seeing the shops, and I'm just like, I can't go in there, <laughs> I can't. And yeah. I just find it fascinating. I mean, the Rana Plaza was the big disaster that got all the news. Yes, you know, it's, it's been going on for years. Yeah, that was, and it's all been forgotten about now that yeah. it's, it's over and done with. So Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because I think even now there's this movement to slightly move away from Bangladesh and India as the garments production hubs. yeah out to East Africa and to places like Ethiopia. And it's very fascinating. I'm going, well, actually, why have you shifted that? Yeah. Have you shifted that because now those wages are Bad starting publicity. to get a bit too yeah. high for you? Yeah, or, yeah. you know, it's just, it's all a bit shifty. I mean, people just always find another way to, yeah. to facilitate the 
continuation of capitalism. Honestly, so. yeah. But yeah, I guess ultimately this these sorts of you know scenarios really sparked my interest in feminist foreign policy and the significance of bottom up initiatives. You know, are, are quite apparent with situations like this. So, for example, you've got in response to the whole child labour crisis, you've got children's trade unions now, which are oh. trying to address. Um, you know, they're actually consulting the, the real victims or the how you term them as victims, people who are working or young kids, underage kids, how you define them in in the West who, you know, need to feel the need to work. Mm. So, and I came across this really interesting mantra called, um, well, it goes by, you know, nothing about us without us. And that really made me sort of challenge my own preconceptions because we're not sat here with (laughs) a child labour worker, are we? So how are we meant to garner their perspective? It's all based on reliance on academic works and empirical research, I guess. Yeah, I think this is where the bottom up becomes so fundamental yeah um, but, you know again to take it back to the climate crisis i interviewed this really awesome um ngo a couple of months ago based out in india who were doing really grounds um sort of grassroots from the bottom up activism but also change in yeah. slum communities in india okay and it was absolutely amazing they were doing sort of um almost re-architecting entire slums to make sure that they weren't vulnerable to climate change. You're going, actually, this is important that people yeah. take this into their own hands because it's not going to happen from the bottom, sorry, from the top down. It's just not no, going to happen no. that way. It's going to, the change is going to have to come from the ground up. So absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. It, it's so fundamental. What the, would you say are the good examples of feminist foreign policy? So we've got things like, in the UK specifically, we've got the Women's Equality Party, um, which actually has implemented a strategy to to develop a feminist foreign policy, but of course it's not a mainstream party. So in terms of the reach it has amongst the public, it's probably pretty low. But if you look at other examples, so we've got Sweden, it was the first country to publicly adopt a feminist foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And the foreign minister... Margaret Wallstrom had said that it meant standing against a systematic and global subordination of women. Um, so I guess that's an interesting example. There are a few others. Yeah, I think um, that's it's one of those that's suitably vague. Yes, very suitably vague. <laughs> and I think we'll probably go on to talk about how suitably vague a lot of these are. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's a step. It's yeah. a first step. Yeah. Is recognising that women are often, I should say women and non-binary folk are often inadvertently more affected by some of the issues that touch foreign policy or yeah. come under the umbrella of foreign policy than yeah. perhaps men are. So it's a first step to recognising that it's a structural inequality. How you then go about um, resolving that is a challenge. Um, yeah. Because again, as we've been talking about, it's... Do we risk, as the UK and Sweden, two very developed countries, do we risk going in and saying, this is what you should be doing to countries that have their own cultures, their own norms, their own customs? Come in and impose your own views and put your own stamp on it is essentially wiping out anyone else's perspective, especially those who it actually directly affects so yeah you're right you do we do yeah. need to be very careful yeah. in how we address it and countries such as sweden and the uk people do look up to them whether we like to admit it or not so that yeah. is a very important consideration um 
swiftly moving on, but I think it is important to actually scrutinise feminist foreign policy as a whole. So let's talk about, you know, some poor examples, I guess, of feminist foreign policy. Um, I think because this as a concept is so new and it's so novel, I think we're Mm. probably going to struggle to find poor examples of where it's not necessarily been implemented. But I think when we look back at people sort of saying, okay, we're going to have a feminist foreign policy, and you go, what does that actually mean in practice? How do we make it accessible for everyone? Exactly, yeah. So I wouldn't, you know, it's not necessarily that it's a poor example, it's more poor strategy of how to implement something. Okay. So um, I think we've already touched a little bit on, we can't go in as people of Western culture, Western background, Western ideals, Capitalistic ideals, essentially. Yeah, Yeah. 100%. We cannot go in and say, this is what we think you should do in order to, you know, increase women's economic participation or political participation. Especially when they're the byproducts of capitalism themselves. Exactly. And that's actually a good point as well, is a lot of feminist foreign policy seems to be geared towards, and this is how you increase women's economic participation. And you're going, okay, great, like, you know, on the surface, that's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, women becoming financially independent is... Is really is important. Is really yeah, important. Of yeah. But actually, is that the be-all and end-all of foreign policy? We know that it's much more beyond that. But what are we doing for women's safety? What are we doing for their health? What are we doing for their children's health, you know? Yeah. Um, what are we doing for their social integration? And There are so many different components to it. It isn't just about economic emancipation. It, there are so many other factors exactly. to take into account. Exactly, yeah, 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 absolutely. During the Rohingya crisis, for example, in the refugee camps, there was a lack of emergency obstetric and newborn care. And I did a bit of research around this because I volunteered for a, a women's um, NGO which helped different marginalised communities. And I was asked to, to do a bit of research and, and draft an article for them. And... There was inaccessible contraception due to um, they had a prerequisite that you needed to provide an address, and that is just ridiculous for a group of refugees who don't have a bloody address. So things like that, and then post-rape care and safe abortion practices. And, you know, rape has been essentially a byproduct of the Burmese military campaign. Mm. So that's why we've had these issues come up in the first place. And the fact that these sorts of matters weren't addressed adequately in these refugee camps really brought to the fore how significantly distressed these people must have been you know not just having a home but not having these vital health care opportunities and I think actually this is where feminist foreign policy can come in and provide us with a lens whereby we can try to marry up a few of the very disparate topics that are within the umbrella of foreign policy yeah so i think this is a very good example of two things that on the surface are very different one's defense and security and one is health and well-being but actually when you look at it through a feminist lens you see that one inadvertently affects the other exactly um i was very lucky to go to an exhibition um in Oslo with um, insights from Dr. McQuiggy, Dr. Dennis McQuiggy. He's done um, loads of work with um, women in crisis zones. Yeah, he's he's amazing and he does some really great work and championing for women who have been through these really horrible circumstances Mm. where, you know, A, on one hand, 
they are subject to sexual violence from quite literally foreign forces and b they don't necessarily have protection from men around them who have probably also gone to fight in this war and that's something that we often forget as women in western countries who don't necessarily feel the need for some sort of protection or feel that we and they don't realize how much of a privilege that is because they don't even have to think about it exactly it's quite ironic because countries which advocate feminist foreign policy as we touched upon sweden as well as canada you know they also have been called out for their simultaneous arms trade with countries carrying out women's human rights abuses. So, for example, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So, in 2018, for, by example, Sweden's military ex- exports rose by 2%, and many of those exports included military exports to non-democratic countries accused of extensive human rights abuses. So, in that sense, how can we take them seriously when they say they advocate a feminist foreign policy when they're doing completely the opposite? Yeah, I think for me, trade is really fascinating. As somebody who comes from a business and management um, academic background, I find trade really fascinating because, I mean, I'm going to say the dreaded B word of Brexit, but, (laughs) you know, the whole thing now is, but we have trade deals left, right and centre. We're going, oh, okay, but what about these fundamental problems that we have? Trade deals, fantastic. But what does that actually mean in practice? But I think you're right in that, where you as a nation decide to give your money and invest in yeah is a direct becomes a direct consequence of of your actions basically are you f- essentially funding regimes that are anti-feminist or that are discriminatory that are racist in any way you know i think but it's nice that they are being called out and scrutinized because imagine without the power of social media and rife information technology would we really be aware of what they're doing in terms of their exports and trade deals we just take whatever they say at face value and assume they do have a feminist foreign policy and they're abiding by all the terms that they set out yeah in their agenda but clearly it's completely the opposite so i guess we've got you know technology and ai and digital the digital world to thank for a lot of these you know, um, I guess, information pieces and just having a greater awareness of what's happening around us. I think that's still something we can look at as a positive. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I think there is a positive angle to what I like to call the democratisation of news. It's, yes. You know, everyone's Everyone, a yeah. journalist now. Absolutely. Um, Everyone wants to have their five minutes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And I think there is definitely positive to it. Yeah. Um, I think the one thing that I still always struggle with is what is actually coming out of that what's the tangible impact of calling these huge institutions out on the crap basically and going what are you going to do about this because that trade relation is so delicate um there's again a fantastic book um the name now escapes me but basically showing how oil and the oil market is so delicately linked with global security yeah and peace um and it just it blows your mind in that actually a lot of these trade relations probably still exist because we're scared because we're afraid of the level of instability yeah exactly and we think about oil and we think about climate change and we're going okay at some point that's going to run out what happens then what happens 
Yeah. There are so many competing factors here. So we've got climate change on one hand and then global stability, as you mm. said, on the other. And then also the fact that we are going to eventually run out of oil reserves and mm. what's what's next. Exactly. The government released um, a, had a press release and they said that they were going to ban diesel and petrol cars by 2035, if not sooner. And that was like a, a crazy blanket statement to make without actually having a, a proper agenda or any other information in, in play. It seemed like just a bit of... I don't know even how to term it, just a bit of white noise, essentially. Yeah, and I think um, that's the risk with a lot of these things. And I think with feminist foreign policy as well, we risk that happening where these seemingly brilliant countries are coming out and going, we're now feminist. So how do we think beyond the current foreign policy narrative? How would you say we'd address that? I think, so at the moment, there is no tangible way to measure a feminist foreign policy. Okay. Now, that's, it's a big question and perhaps one that we, we're not we going to be able really to answer, answer here. Yeah. But what does it mean to have a successful feminist foreign policy? What does it mean to be successful for women and non-binary people around the world? How do you even begin to measure that? I'm really glad that you mentioned non-binary as well because... I think we can safely agree the patriarchy has had a significantly negative impact on anyone who isn't part of the the, the elite club of patriarchy and, and masculinity and, you know, it's a man's world. So, yeah, I'm glad you've mentioned that because it's not something I've thought about yeah. as widely as I should. And, and I'm happy to admit that and it's something I'd like to change. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's something that I've just sort of been educated on sometimes the hard way because I've not really known um as someone who identifies as cisgender I've not necessarily participated in that narrative but I think it is becoming more and more important to recognize that gender isn't binary right and gender is a spectrum yeah Yeah. it's a fluid and you have to recognize that there are people in the world who don't ascribe to that binary and the more and more you put constraints on those people the more oppressed they are and correct and and the less you are actually enabling feminism yeah. to happen which is the equality between sexes correct whatever exactly. gender or what on the binary spectrum you know wherever you wherever you place yourself exactly exactly and there are some very real implications for non-binary folks you know for being persecuted yeah. um, arrested it's a topic worth delving into in absolutely that, you know perhaps there's a certain privilege here as well that we, we don't as know women, about. As women, as cisgender yeah. women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it does raise bigger issues surrounding sustainability and climate change. As you mentioned, you're quite a big advocate of climate change initiatives in terms of addressing the impending disaster we face in terms of wiping out the entire planet. I mean, <laughs> perhaps that's a bit extreme, but I mean, that is a direction we'll be going in if we're not if we're not more aware about these things. I yeah. mean, there are things, that, the concepts such as lab-grown meat, which is probably going to come into effect at some point in our lifetimes, perhaps later on when we're decades older, we've got AI, uh, in which case the majority of us will be out of jobs. So how do we address that for marginalised groups such as women in um, less economically developed countries, for example. Mm, Yeah, so I'm super interested in farming and agriculture. And obviously you've just brought up lab-grown meat, um, (laughs) which is... um, It's scary, isn't it? It's really weird. Like, it's just strange. How is it going to taste like meat, first of all? What's going to be in it? I've got a revolutionary idea. Just stop eating meat. Just (laughs) basically. Just stop. Um, That's coming from a veggie, so I'm very biased. Um, (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Very biased. So I've taken a real interest in 
in farming and agriculture as not only something that's essentially going to save us if we use it correctly, mm. um, but also as something that is a women's activity. In, yeah. oh, activity is actually painting a really light word. It's a women's, women's activity. Sorry, it's women's economic backbone in many countries. Okay. Um, you know, there's a, still this model that we in Western countries have often far removed from because we've come into a services industry largely where actually there's still a model of the man in the family goes out yeah. to work um yeah. you know he might be in a city um four to five days a week and then come home on the weekend and a woman and her children often tend to um farms and fields and then sell in local markets for a little bit of extra income on the side yeah um I was very lucky. I spent 10 weeks in Burkina Faso about three years ago, um, and that was almost exactly the model of the house that I lived in. Um, oh, really? They, yeah, and they actually brewed their own beer with the with the barley that they had picked, which is amazing. It was it's a self-sufficiency, isn't it? It's, it's amazing how people do it. Exactly, exactly. They don't need to rely on technology or even man-made strictures. They can literally just survive... And oh, be self-sufficient, 100%. and they're not harming the environment, and that's 100%. pretty pretty amazing because we can would never be able to adapt to that. You no. know, being city people as we are, not at all. And I think farming is an interesting one because it's so it's so natural in its conception. It's like the oldest trade there could possibly be. Yeah, and yet we're seeing like AI, blockchain, sensors, Internet of Things, like every single possible technology that you could ever even dream about is currently in the agricultural sector. What does that mean for these women who are going out into the fields every day? What does that mean for their spot in this supply chain, this global agricultural and food supply chain? What does it mean for them even being able to afford this technology that puts them back on a map? It's all just, it boggles the mind how it's all interlinked. Well, I mean, if anything, I think it will work out well for them in the long term because while we're reliant on all these facilities and technology capabilities that's actually going to come back to bite us because they're going to take over our jobs whereas agricultural farmers won't have necessarily ai to be doing their jobs because they can just do it themselves if they want to and if necessary they can just support themselves without having to rely on these food chains that you've just mentioned with within the capitalist patriarchy yeah, but um yeah, yeah. yeah that's an interesting concept as well maybe we'll just you know not regress but just go back to where we initially became humans i would love that can you imagine uh, do you know what there are so many <laughs> things about like modern society especially living somewhere like london where i just think oh my god we don't need that we don't need that it's a luxury yeah. like, i think when i realize it oh, i know we don't need that i just realize it when people are like running for trains and stuff and i'm like there's another do you one really in two need to minutes. do that yeah there's another one in i mean two i minutes. do that myself i'm a culprit for that <laughs> You know, I just want to get in 10 minutes earlier at work so I can, you know, chill and have my coffee. What a luxury. (laughs) But yeah, it's, you know, it's things like that that you just realise once you're like, our entire world is falling apart and we're like pushing and shoving over who can get on the tube first. And I think once you sort of see it, it's very hard to unsee it. So also probably wouldn't recommend coming over to this side of the fence because everything sucks when you come over to this side of the fence. Yeah, because you can't go back, can you? Yeah, you're like, everything is not a problem. (laughs) There is one big problem where we need to address it. (laughs) But I think going back to, I think we touched on this early at the beginning, but the term feminist foreign policy can be seen as quite exclusive or as a woman's club. And I think it is really important to remember to focus not just on women, but on the historical, structural, power relations and gender equality. 
in order to have an intersectional understanding of feminism. And as you explained, you know, it isn't just about women's equality, it's about everyone's equality. Um, and it is really important to frame the narrative of a feminist for- foreign policy in that way because the terminology of it, you know, the semantics can be quite daunting, I think, for some people who don't really understand what it means. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, intersectionality is the key word here, which is probably another big word that everyone's like, oh, yeah, what's what, that? what is that, yeah. Um, but essentially, at its core, what intersectionality is, is recognising that there are, there are essentially layers of privilege. Um, it's... You can be a woman, but you can be a white woman, or you can be a brown woman. Or you know, this is not saying that there are only three categories, but you know, <laughs> white, a, black, or brown. Yeah, Which exactly. One are you? Pick one. Um, um, you yeah. know, you can be a white woman, you can be a brown woman, sort of in in India, but living in a middle class family, for example. Or you might be a black woman living in East Africa, sort of in a in a village. That's hugely stereotypical. I do apologise. <laughs> um, but there are layers. You know, yes. there's. We've talked already about the gender spectrum we've talked a little bit about race we need to touch on ableism as yes, well um, yeah and that's something we forget as able-bodied people it's very easy to to forget about these things and i was actually called out on it recently um i wrote an article not not that long ago about intersectional feminism mm. ironically and um i i mentioned every type of marginalized group but the non-able-bodied oh. and um, my friend's girlfriend who um, who is in a wheelchair and she's got loads of health health obstacles she uh, she got in touch with me and she said oh you, you didn't mention the fact that you're able-bodied and that is a privilege oh, and you know I was just like I can't I genuinely can't believe I'd, I'd forgotten to include that but that is how blinded I was by my own sense of privilege yeah. I'm so glad to be called out on it of course but um, yeah it made me really realise and question myself and I think that is a key element of what intersectionality should be, like recognising your own privileges. Yeah, and I think that's the only way that a true feminist foreign policy is going to work. Yeah. Um, You know, you've got countries where there's huge income disparity, so you can't even paint everybody with the same brush. Yeah. So I like to use India as an example in these situations because, A, it's such a huge country. I mean, socioeconomically, it's crazy. You've got some of the biggest billionaires in the world sitting, you know, in Mumbai next to, basically next to the slums in Mumbai. It's just, it's weird. But, you know, if you're saying to me that your feminist foreign policy with regard to India in particular is to encourage economic participation for all Indian women yeah. actually you need to dig into that like polarisation between Indian communities yeah, yeah exactly so essentially you can't tell me that your your feminist foreign policy is for all Indian women or you know all Chinese women or all, yeah. you know any country where there is huge income disparity because there will be somebody who already has access to all that opportunity but just happens to be a woman as well yeah but happens to also be the daughter of some sort of billionaire that has those sorts of opportunities have to skew towards those who really don't have access to them. So my just slight hesitation with saying we have a feminist foreign policy is actually how are you going deeper into those layers of intersectionality, looking at class, looking at caste in some countries, um, looking at colorism, race, um, occupation, age, disability. How are you 
digging through all those layers of intersectionality and going actually this is the subset of people that really need our help that yeah. really need and consulting them hearts. on it you know actually getting their opinion so you know what it is that they want and what their shortcomings are and what yeah. they'd like to see happen in the future yeah. without having their consultation like what is the point you're not actually addressing the problem because you don't actually truly understand what they're going through and that yeah. is a really really important subset of intersectionality and should comprise as a wider objective of foreign policy feminist foreign policy absolutely yeah um so i guess arguments for a foreign feminist foreign policy and arguably we may be biased here or we may not it's it's up to the listeners to decide here but the council on foreign relations research indicates that inclusion of women during conflicts actually adds stability to the peace process including their political participation so i guess that's one argument for a foreign policy so that we have everyone's views and we have a well-rounded understanding of society as a whole because women make up 50 percent of the population whether we like to admit it or not yeah and i think the, <laughs> there's a lot isn't it it's a <laughs> big half um, i think this is a really really tenuous analogy but yes when you look at business and you look at the argument for diversity and inclusion in business and you see that actually when you put women at the top in decision making and leadership positions yeah the companies actually do better financially they do better socially they, they do better just as organizations yeah um again as i said very tenuous link to a very deep-seated issue of peace and security yeah but when you include women in these discussions women are actually in many communities they have tendrils in all parts of communities basically and they can see not only from their perspective but also from the perspective of the men in that community of their kids in that community or facilities in that community because they are wholly participating in a community yes. i think this is really important because absolutely you know for fear of sounding really blankety i'm pretty sure that all war starts with men i'm like 100 oh, sure yeah <laughs> I mean, I that's from a biological perspective yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't think you can really argue with that because it's factually how things are. Yeah. Um, so I guess I don't want to be like, uh, you know, I don't want to be setting binaries here when it comes to critiquing feminist foreign policy because as we've discussed, there isn't actually one where, which we can really hold to account here because a lot of it, as you said previously, is paying lip service. But if we were to critique the policy as a whole... Could we arguably question whether it does constrict the narrative and take away from the wider challenges? So, for example, climate change, wealth gap, if we just limit it to a wider foreign policy issue, do we risk taking out a lot of the other factors which come into play? Yeah, I think that is definitely a risk. Um, and I think that that sort of begs the question again of what is feminism? Yeah. Um, is feminism something that works only for one of the sexes or is it something that actually liberates everybody when it's done correctly um i think in those wider challenges there is always going to be a gender element yeah um i think it's actually how do the authorities and the institutions that claim to be the proponents of this foreign policy actually touch on these wider issues are we touching on them at all you know yeah what are the uk and sweden and canada doing about climate change um yeah at the moment unfortunately very little sweden's probably the the one that's doing the the most but does that count as foreign policy or is it an entirely different remit and taking the moral high ground so having this white savior approach to tackling 
issues of poverty and inequality in less economically developed countries. And I think whatever we do as Western countries, we're going to be criticised for it because the historical connotations of issues such as colonialism and imperialism are deep-rooted and embedded within our wider global society and it's really hard to come away from that if we have if we look at the reasons for why there is so much poverty in less economically developed countries in the first place yeah i think it's really important to bring up colonialism because yes it is historical but the groundwork for the society we live on today we live in today was in colonial times yeah you know the reason that that so much inequality exists is not only because of resources and wealth that was stripped away from other nations to bolster the wealth of the ground that we sit on today, but also because, and this is where my trade nerdiness comes in, um, (gasps) imperialist trade still exists. Yes. You know, if we think about sanctions, think about sanctions as an example. Yeah. Who is allowed to give who sanctions? Just just think just about think that. Just think about that. You know? And look at the UN Security Council. Which countries are they comprised of? Five very elite countries in the world. Economically, very prosperous. And in terms of their actual impact globally, you know, there is a hierarchy when it comes to political power yeah. globally on a global scale. And the UN's Security Council is a, is a prime example of that, yeah. arguably. Absolutely. Um, so overall, Charlene, would you say that feminist foreign policy is a force for good? What a big question. Um, <laughs> I think it has the potential to be. I think it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, I think there are some kinks that need to be ironed out. Um, as somebody who, again, I did a degree in marketing, so I'm very critical of marketing and communications. And But it's all important because it shapes our views. And oh, our world, 100%. So, yeah, yeah. And I just worry that... This is a it's a marketing tactic. It's like greenwashing, but in the context of feminism. Yeah. Where these three countries that we might have highlighted as being positive examples currently have no way of measuring their no. their impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they might on paper have a lot of ideas about what they term to be a feminist foreign policy. You know, they've got economic participation, they've got political participation, they've got access to health, they've got access to education, which, of course, nobody is denying that they are amazing things. But to me, when you don't have something that tangibly is able to measure your output, um, is it effective at all to have this feminist foreign policy? What does this mean for five, ten years' time? How are you going to be able to show that you've made any progress? Yeah. at all we, we definitely need to um, interrogate and continually reframe the foreign feminist policy narrative because society is constantly changing and evolving and we need to be able to adapt to this rapidly changing world um, and a good way to do with that is is actually playing the devil's advocate you know that's the only way we can truly test our hypotheses so start with the basics so for example i was thinking about this quite a lot recently so education by and large we can agree that everyone should have the right to to an education yep Um, but if we impose this concept on others it becomes a propagandizing lobby tool without consulting those impacted so if we take a step back and define education are we advocating the institutionalized form of education as a supreme of all educations or do we let people personalize what education actually means for them so thereby making it work for them and in their 
particular circumstances. So, for example, a 30-year-old illiterate seamstress with four teenage kids in a remote village in South Asia or even sub-Saharan Africa, before we proselytize what we think is good for her, do we need to ask what does she want? Does she want to start up her own sewing company? Let her lead her own narrative, I think, would be a good place to start with that. So perhaps she'd want to start a business as a seamstress. Maybe she doesn't want to go back to school or to college. She doesn't need to necessarily. So I guess that's an interesting example, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, healthcare is another one where actually we need to decolonise healthcare and think about what health means to different communities and to different people. Yeah. Um, I think physically, biologically, there's definitely definition that we can agree on. Um, increasingly in terms of mental health as well, we can agree on a particular definition. Um, One thing that we don't necessarily think about in a Western context, given how individualistic our culture is, not necessarily in a bad way, just just the fact... Yeah, just the way it is, yeah. ...is community health. Um, Yes. Health of entire villages, health of um, businesses and sort of economies that are run on micro scales. Yeah. That is a health factor. That is a health factor. Absolutely. And, and look at the mental health issues we're facing because of how individualistic we are as a society, as you've said. So, um, yeah, that's definitely something to consider. And the reason for that is because there is that void for a lot of people who do lead a life of individuality in that they don't have interactions with others and you know research has shown that you need to have contact with other human beings because that is how we we have evolved as a species so another thing to definitely think about and you're absolutely right I completely agree now we've come to the quote of the book Mm -hmm. so I always ask my guests to quote an extract from a book which they can relate to uh, and if it does contain any feminist theme perhaps they can also share that with us so would you like to go ahead Sure thing. I'm going to cheat a little bit because I don't actually think this is from a book. That's fine. I love this quote. Um, It's from Dr. Vandana Shiva, who is um, an Indian environmentalist, and she's written some incredible books, um, essentially exposing not just corporations, but also authorities on their for their greed um, and their exploitation of natural resources in India um, at the peril of many, many rural communities um, and how that's led to um, a real sense of inequality um, in a country that, as you said earlier, is is so diverse. Um, but the quote is, we are either going to have a future where women lead the way to make peace with the earth or we are not going to have a human future at all. Um, And I have a very specific image um, of a group of women that I think of when I read this quote, and that's um, an example that I turn to time and time again. It's the 1970s Chipko movement. And Chipko in Hindi essentially just means stick to it. And what these women um, in the state of Uttarakhand did was basically stuck themselves to, or in English, they uh, just hugged trees. Um, Can't really have an adequate translation. No, there's no translation for that, (laughs) is there? Sorry so, about that. I'm definitely okay. coming down with a cold. <laughs> Gonna have to edit that bit out. Bless you. Um, so these women basically were hugging trees that were at risk of being felled and at risk of deforestation to make roads um, in a village where they really relied on these natural resources, not only for um, economic participation, but also just to feed themselves. On a very basic human level, they needed this forest. They needed this... Um, this fauna this flora to to live um and so these women for for days they just 
hugged these trees and it worked um and it really? led to yeah it led to a, a ban a sort of five to ten year ban on felling in the himalayas um, that's incredible just that you know that change that initiative yeah. had such a huge impact yeah and it just there's something sort of deeper that i don't even necessarily think is factual but i, I think i do believe the more i read about farming agriculture land food um, all of these are interlinked and I, I just have this feeling that women are more in tune with the land and I know it sounds ridiculous and I know there's no factual backing for it but you know you look at the Gaia theory yeah and why is Mother Earth called Mother Earth there's a whole story behind the that. femininity behind it as exactly. well exactly how it's where it's rooted yeah and I think sometimes that is a bit jarring when we try to pair it alongside stuff like feminist foreign policy yeah, you know, we try yeah, to yeah. put it alongside well the facts and the the figures behind climate change but actually i think there is truth in the fact that women are more attuned to nature and they are more attuned to the land and you know we as western women perhaps aren't even that much so but women who quite literally pick from the land to feed their kids yeah. or Her rely on that land, nature yeah rely on that land for their financial empowerment that's huge that really is feminism it's in huge. action yeah exactly. absolutely um so my quote is from a book called mother india which was written a long time ago i think it was published in 1927 and it's by the american historian Catherine mayo now the book itself i haven't finished but i've got a quote from it and um it's actually very very infuriating in today's age but of course back then it was absolutely acceptable in terms of the narrative it portrayed so it's essentially a propaganda polemic and it's against india's demand for independence so the quote is take a girl child 12 years old a pitiful physical specimen in bone and blood illiterate ignorant without any sort of training and habits of health force motherhood upon her at the earliest possible moment Rear her weakling son in intensive vicious practices that drain his small vitality day by day. Give him no outlet in sports. Give him habits that make him, by the time he is 30 years of age, a decrepit and querulous old wreck. And will you ask what has sapped the energy of his manhood? Now, shocking, isn't it? Yes, quote? it's absolutely insane. You know, it's, it's a massive piece of propaganda against India's desire for independence back in you know over a century ago now but the whole tonality of preaching and saving these people from themselves and thereby justifying the colonization of these peoples you know it's it's a massive um the whole semantics of it is is questionable and it's so harrowing to read something in today's context you know that portrays you know non-western peoples in this light it's, it's really really scary and it essentially taking away their agency and infantilizing them not necessarily much different to the way western feminists approach the eastern world when thinking of ways to uplift and sanctify these poor illiterate women and i think the attitude really needs to change and that's what i've taken from that from that yeah, book because it yeah. you can see sort of you know the undertones of that sort of mindset within western feminism i think is is quite um quite apparent i mean definitely not in that particular way but in terms of seeking to take away their agency and perhaps subconsciously but it's still something that needs to be addressed 
and yeah. recognised, definitely. Yeah, yeah, the white saviour complex, still here. Yeah, need to get still rid of here, it. 2020. Oh. But um, thank you very much for coming on to today's show. I really appreciate your time, and you've spoken so eloquently to our listeners, so thank you very much for that. And it's thank been great having, having you. Me. Yeah, it's been, you've been great company, so it feels like we've just had a, a chat over a cup of coffee. Amazing, that's so, what I'd like to hear. Thank you for having me, Tanya. Um, it's been amazing to, to discuss something that I think could really be a uh, positive force if yeah. it's employed in a way that, that works for everybody. Um, and yeah, thank you guys for listening um, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's to a feminist foreign policy in 2020. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to Brown Don't Frown podcast. If today's discussion interested you or you want to share your story, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Brown Don't Frown Podcast and on Twitter at BDF Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyasweeklydose.com. Join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Frown Podcast. Please like, share and subscribe. Thank you.